you bow and pray with me? Lord God, this morning, on the last Sunday morning of 2018, we thank you for your faithfulness, for your guidance, and for sustaining us through another year. And Father, we pray now as we open your word again, Father, we ask that you would feed us, that you would fill us, and that you would equip us to faithfully follow you both today and in the year ahead. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, over the past 365 days, there have been millions upon millions of phone calls made. Maybe you can think in your own life of phone calls you made at work, phone calls you received from family, or maybe even the dreaded telemarketer that somehow called your home, even though you're on a do not call list. But this week, I read an interesting article titled The 10 Worst 911 Calls of 2018. This article did not use the word worst in terms of people who were going through tragedy or disasters, but instead, these people who called 911 were going through what we'll call incidents and decided it was necessary to call and ask for help. Just imagine how some of these phone calls went. 911 emergency, how may I help you? And someone on the other end of the phone reporting that their vehicle's windshield wipers stopped working. Someone else reporting that a restaurant wouldn't redeem a coupon that they received in the mail. Someone who was at a gas station and, and, and the gas attendant put the fuel in the car, but they put the wrong type of fuel in. Or my favorite, the top on the list, 911 emergency, how may I help you? And on the other end of the phone was someone calling to complain that a restaurant was not open 24 hours a day as advertised. Now we know that these are just silly situations of people who were going through different things and decided that they needed to call for help. But over the past year, there were many people who were going through tragedy, who were going through disaster, who were going through suffering, and called this emergency system because they needed help. They needed hope. And this morning, as we think of the text that we're going to be studying in 1 Peter, it's not a whole bunch of people calling, asking for help, but it's actually the complete opposite. The book of 1 Peter is written by Peter the Apostle, who many of us learned about for our whole lives, from when we were small in vacation Bible school to even now. Peter, the man who followed Jesus, who saw Jesus do miracles, who walked on water and then began to sink. Peter, the man who denied Christ three times but then was restored and Jesus used him to help build the church. This Peter wrote a letter to a, to a group of people who were suffering. These were first-generation Christians who decided to follow Jesus, and they were going through very difficult situations. And I invite you this morning to open up your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5 is on page 1017 in your pew Bibles. And this morning we're going to be studying 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 11. Very important note of context to keep in mind as we read. These verses act as the bookend, as some of the last verses in this book. But the idea of suffering or of trials 
is discussed in chapter 1, in chapter 2, in chapter 3, in chapter 4, and then we see it again here in chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 6. This is the word of the Lord. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after, all, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This morning, we're actually going to start in verses 10 and 11 and see how these two verses build a foundation to understand and apply the four verses right before them. So we're going to start in verse 10 where Peter writes, And after you have suffered a little while. This morning, we see this clear observation that Peter made that if you are a follower of Jesus, that means that you are going to suffer The people who received this letter in the first century, their lives were very different than they would have been if they never decided to follow Jesus. Just like you or I, when we choose to follow Jesus, there will be suffering. The people who received this letter were were receiving suffering from other people who were persecuting them for being Christians. But we also realize that they were suffering some of the same sufferings that you and I have experienced. Maybe some suffering that you have experienced this past year. Health problems, relationship tension, spiritual struggles, trying to figure out how to follow Jesus in the world that we live in. And I also realize for us gathering here today, you might be going through some struggles right now that maybe no one else knows about. But Peter speaks here in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, the reality of suffering in our world. But thankfully, he didn't stop there. He says in verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while. Peter implies that our suffering will not go on forever. Now, that doesn't take away the pain of the suffering that we are in. But it does put our suffering in the right perspective. It's as if what Peter is saying here is that our, the time of our suffering is like a grain of sand on the beach of eternity. I mean, you can think of the last time you went to the beach, and there is sand as far as the eye can see, and there's sand over every part of your body. Millions and millions of molecules of sand. Yet it's as if Peter is saying your suffering is one grain of sand on the beach of eternity. Our suffering is real, our suffering is painful, but our suffering is temporary. This was hope for these people who were suffering. And Peter continues this verse in verse 10. He says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, 
will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter points us to the credibility and the confidence that we can have of God in the midst of our suffering. Now, I don't know if you're someone who likes to write in your Bible or not. I like to write in my Bible sometimes, and I circled the word will. This is a very important word in this chapter. It says, after you have suffered a little while, God will himself restore you. This is not the weatherman on the television saying there's a 70% chance of snow tomorrow. This is not your prediction whether your favorite football team is going to make the playoffs this afternoon based on how they do. This is confidence that as we suffer in the midst of real life, God will do what he says he is going to do. Do you trust him this morning? Now let's see what he says. He says he's going to do four actions. He is going to restore. He is going to confirm. He is going to strengthen. And he is going to establish. When we think of these four words, we realize how comforting this was for these people in the first century who received this letter in the midst of hostility for following Jesus. But I wonder if we think about how these four words comfort us in the midst of the suffering that maybe you have been going through this past year. Do you realize that as we trust God, he will restore, he will confirm, he will strengthen, and he will establish you? This is hope in the midst of suffering. And this leads us to our big idea of this morning, which is God's loving actions toward us fuel our reliance on him. See, these four actions we just talked about, God restoring, confirming, strengthening, and establishing, these are all actions of love that God wouldn't need to do. But he does this, these actions because he loves you, because he loves me. And these loving actions toward us fuel our reliance on him. Now, this idea of relying on God is one that's pretty countercultural for us. I mean, even right now, this time of year, as we close the book of one year and open up the book of the next, there's a lot of conversation about being the person that you want to be. Set your mind to a new goal. Find the strength within you. Go be the person you want to be. But we see here in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter doesn't call us to rely on ourselves in the midst of our suffering. He calls us to take our eyes off of ourselves and to put them onto Jesus. So what does reliance on God look like? Well, move forward, um, backwards with me a little bit to, to verse 6. We see four commands that exemplify relying on God. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, where Peter commands the people... To humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humility toward God is reliance in nature, because what Peter says here is we are supposed to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Right? It's impossible to humble ourselves over God. That doesn't even make sense. But Peter is reminding the people 
who are going throughout life striving to follow Jesus, that their hope is to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. Because if there was any hope to make it through their lives, it was obvious it was going to be done through God. But I love how Peter doesn't stop at verse 6. He continues to verse 7, giving us an example of what humility should look like in the midst of suffering. And he gives us an example of what humility should look like in our lives in the midst of suffering. He says in verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Isn't it true that when we go through difficult times, those are some of the times we're tempted most to be anxious? When we go through trials in our life, we're trying to put our life together and make sure it can, we can just survive and get through life. But what Peter calls these people to is not anxiety, but the opposite. Because God cares for you. It's as if Peter is saying, don't put the weight of the world on your shoulders. Let God carry the world, for he's the one who made it. Thinking of this concept of trusting God and not putting the weight of the world on our shoulders, I'm reminded with a phone call that I had a few weeks ago. I have a younger brother who's a college student in Chicago, and he was at my parents' home for Christmas break, and he called me and told me what every older brother wants to hear. He said, Kyle, I bought you a Christmas gift this year that you're really going to enjoy. So I was like, this is good. And then he continued, and he said, but I broke it. And I asked him what it was, but he wouldn't tell me what he bought me. So um, the conversation went on, it's over. Christmas Eve came, and Jenna and I were here for the, one of the Christmas Eve services. We drove to my parents' house several hours away, and the conversation picked up again. He said, Kyle, I got you this gift that you would really enjoy for Christmas. I said, I know you told me, and you told me you broke it. What did you get me? He goes, I won't tell you. And so finally, he said, I won't tell you, but if you want to walk up to my bedroom, you can see what it is. So um, I was frustrated, just like everyone wants to be on Christmas Eve. And I walked up the stairs, and I walked into his bedroom, and I looked on his desk, and I saw what I would have really enjoyed for a Christmas gift. I saw a globe. Something many people don't know about me is for some reason, I'm not really sure exactly myself, for some reason, I love maps, I love atlases, and I love globes. However... At closer inspection of this globe I saw on his desk, it literally looked like an earthquake took place. There was a gash across the Philippines. This gash went straight across the Pacific Ocean, down into Chile, and across Argentina. And I walked down the stairs to him, and I did what, again, any older brother would do. I said, Joel, God's got the whole world in his hands, and you can't hold my globe? He proceeded to tell me that he had it, he was excited for me, that he had it for me, and he was walking in the house, and he had his iPhone in his hand, which at the time, for some reason, was not in a case, and he dropped it. And when he dropped it, he went to pick up the iPhone, and he dropped the globe. And as I was thinking about this story and mourning the loss of this Christmas present, I'm thinking, isn't that how most of us are with God? We're afraid that maybe he's going to get lost in the details of life. 
and he might drop our world and it might fall apart. And the temptation is, especially when we're going through hard times, we want to hold on to our life. But what Peter calls these people to is to not be anxious, to let go of the control of their life, and to trust God. Because like it says at the end of verse 7, he cares for you. Maybe you needed to come this morning just to hear these few words. God cares for you. This past year might have been difficult. This past year might have been glorious. You might still be suffering today, or you might have suffering in the rearview mirror. But let me remind you, the word of God is sure. He cares for you. This was hope for those first-generation Christians. And this is hope for us today. But Peter didn't stop at the command to humble themselves. The next two commands that we see in verse 8 are tied together. Look down with me at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. The two commands are to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The command here of being sober-minded, of being watchful, this was not new for this letter that Peter was writing. I mean, flip with me probably one page to the left in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1. This idea of sober-minded comes up three times in this book. We see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Command number one. Turn with me to chapter 4, verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And then we see in chapter 5, verse 8, this command that I just read, we're supposed to be sober-minded and be watchful. The idea of controlling our minds and being alert. Peter commands his readers about their minds and their eyes. They were supposed to think clearly and watch carefully. Why were they supposed to do that? Well, he explains that their enemy, the devil, Satan himself, he says, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. See, the people who were reading this letter for the first time, they could have decided to avoid the reality of Satan but that wouldn't change the fact that Satan was prowling like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now we realize that this is, a, this is a, an expression of, the, of language, it's a simile. Satan actually isn't a lion. But it's a pretty scary description. That Satan is roaring like a lion, seeking someone to devour. And I wonder if sometimes... We, whether intentionally or unintentionally, 
avoid the reality of Satan in our world. Now, we shouldn't, we shouldn't forget that God is ultimately sovereign over Satan, but the Bible teaches that he is seeking someone to devour. And if we are going to be reliant on God this year, it means that we must have a clear mind and we must be alert. Because Satan is real, whether we acknowledge him or not. And Peter continues in verse 9 with the fourth command, and that is to resist him firm in your faith. Now think about this. If you were reading this letter, what Peter is commanding them and commanding us to do is to resist Satan. If someone told you to resist a lion, what would you do? If someone told you to resist a different type of wild animal, what would you do? But what the command that Peter gives is that they were supposed to resist Satan. What does that look like in our lives today? You might be sitting here thinking, how are we supposed to, re to resist Satan? Seems like something that might need a miracle, something that might need some type of magical spell, because we're mere humans fighting against the devil himself. But let me remind you this morning that when Jesus was on earth, he resisted Satan. Remember in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is being tempted by the devil, Jesus did not use a miracle to beat Satan. What did he use? He used the word of God. I read a quote um, last year that said, In the wilderness, Jesus battled Satan not with miracles, but with verses from Deuteronomy. That is incredible news for us today. In order to fulfill what Peter commands for you and I to do, we don't need to be miracle workers. Instead, we need to be people of the book. We need to be people who read, who learn, and who apply the word of God to our lives. Resisting Satan is scary. Even just saying this is, seems kind of unusual because it's something I don't even talk about very much. But let me remind you this morning as we start a new year here in a couple days, if the Bible was good enough for Jesus to use in fighting Satan, I think the Bible should be good enough for us. May we be people of the word in 2019. And the second way we resist Satan that's shown here in the text is we see the end of verse 9. He says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. See, Peter kind of plays a, di a different type of idea here. In verse 8, when he's describing the work of Satan, it says he is seeking someone to devour. He's seeking an individual. He's seeking a singular, someone to devour. But when Peter writes in verse 9 about resisting Satan, he draws their attention away from the individual, and he says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Satan does some of his best work sometimes 
when we are isolated from God and when we are isolated from other believers. And Peter's command was to resist Satan and for them to remember that there were other Christians who were going through similar things that they were going through. And that leaves us today for the reminder for you, you are not alone in your suffering. One of the lies that the devil might play in your mind is that you are alone and no one knows what you are going through. But be encouraged. There's a brotherhood around the world that is going through the same types of suffering. In this new year, may we be people of the word of God and may we be people of Christian community. Like it says later in the New Testament, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as the day approaches. This is hope in the midst of suffering. And thinking about this this passage and thinking about our lives and all that we've been through this past year and all that's in front of us this upcoming year, Lord willing, that we don't know yet, it reminds me of someone I've learned about named John G. Patton. Now, I don't think many people in this room probably heard of John G. Patton. I looked for information on him to try to get a picture of him to put up here or even a drawing or a painting of him, but there was none on Google. But John G. Patton was someone who lived in the early 1800s. And on May 24, 1824, this 33-year-old man sailed from Scotland down by Australia to this section of islands that were in the Pacific Ocean. He sailed there because there were a group of people who never heard the name of Jesus. Or if they heard the name of Jesus, many of them were not believing And John G. Patton knew his share of suffering. Not only can you imagine the emotional suffering of what it would be for this man and his wife and young infant child to show up at these islands in the midst of many people and many of them don't know Jesus. But within his first year there, his wife and his young child died. Yet he stayed and proclaimed the gospel Because he knew that if he was self-reliant on God, that God could use him. One night, there were hundreds of people who were hunting not for animals, but they were hunting for him. And he found himself in a very unique situation. This is what he says in his autobiography. He said, I climbed in the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of savages. Just think for a moment. He went to this place, shown up here on the screen, in order to deliver the gospel. And instead, these people were trying to kill him. He climbed the tree. He heard the muskets. He heard the yells of savages, and this is what he says. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul 
than when the moonlight flickered among the chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told my heart to Jesus. He continues, alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? John G. Patton exemplified for us that in the midst of suffering, our aim should not be survival. Our aim should be to know Christ more. I don't imagine in the coming years ahead that many of us, if any of us, are going to find ourselves climbing a tree with cannibal savages trying to kill us. But I do know that the Bible is clear that suffering is ahead. We saw this morning that Peter said suffering is ahead. The Bible doesn't speak of this, but church history tells us that for Peter himself, he was martyred for his faith. Yet the confidence comes knowing that God is greater even than our suffering. And our God, who will one day restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you, his loving actions fuel our self-reliance on him. Each of us have a choice as the new year starts. Are we going to live in this new year as the sovereign commander in our lives? Or are we going to surrender to the God of the universe and his son, Jesus Christ? May this new year be a year where we rely on the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you this morning that it is true. And Father, I pray for my friends in this room, those who are going through difficult times even now, and the rest of us who are maybe going through difficult times now or have been or will be. Father, I pray that we take hope, knowing that you are in control of all things. And Father, we thank you that this morning you care for us, even today. Father, in order to rely on you, we need you. We cannot do this on ourselves. It's unnatural. So, Father, we pray that you give us the strength to rely on you, not for our glory, but for yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.